You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. My name is Sam Bleeby. I'm the Senior Minister here at St. John's and Christchurch. And if you were here on Sunday, uh, you'll know that we had a little look at the Last Supper last Sunday. And so tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to go a little bit later in the night. We're going to go to the garden. It is late at night. There's a chill in the air and all is dark. It's one of Jesus' favourite places. A place he often came for some quiet and to pray. But tonight it's not a place of joy for Jesus. As we come to the garden with him, we see perhaps most clearly of any of the places in all of the Gospels that Jesus really is fully human. I wonder if, as we've watched him, perhaps you've heard the gospel stories and you've watched him heal the sick and tame nature and teach with an authority that no one has ever matched before or after. Whether for us uh, it has been easier to see him in his deity than in his humanity. Uh, I wonder if the thought has crept into our heads that this is actually all quite easy for Jesus. After all, he has the advantage of deity as he tackles the ins and outs of life. Perhaps uh, we even have a notion of barely cloaked superpowers that uh, Clark Kent-like, he's been walking among us, but not truly one of us. Well, if you've been thinking that, then the Garden of Gethsemane tells you just how wrong that idea is. He is fully human. Perhaps even more fully human than you or I. If you prick him, he bleeds. If you insult him, he hurts. Pain and confusion, joy and sorrow. The dark nights of the soul, he feels them all. And especially... Especially here in the garden. Here in the garden where every step into it he goes is a step into ever-increasing isolation, ever-increasing desolation. We know from uh, the other Gospels that Jesus begins surrounded by his disciples and then just the twelve actually know. One has already departed, it's the eleven. And from them, Jesus chooses the three, Peter, James, and John. And then, even they're left a short distance away as he goes on himself. He's already stepping into that which only he can do. And it's such a deep and dark work. The pressure of it bears him down. And he falls to the ground and he's in the greatest of anguish. And there's very real turmoil in his heart. It's close to breaking him and he says, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. Does that bother you? There have been so many who have actually followed the Lord into this place, so many who have 
followed him and faced death almost without a blink, who stayed so constant and firm, and yet Jesus seems to waver. He seems almost overthrown. How, how is that? Well, to understand it, I think we need to go to another garden. We need to go to Eden. We need to go to the first Adam. Do you remember Adam in the garden? The garden where God had said that he could eat of any of the fruit of any of the trees, but not from one tree, not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And every holy instinct in Adam told him that this tree was good. And it looked good to eat and that it was not so unlike any other tree. And the only thing that marked it off from the others was that God had said no. And so Adam has the choice there. He can trust the father and he can obey. He can continue in the perfect relationship and endless life or he can cut himself off from God and relationship with him from the source of life and hope and joy and all things that are good. And what does he do? He reaches out. And he takes the fruit and he said, give this cup to me. Not your will, but my will be done. And so he plunged the world into its terrible isolation from God. And the awful desolation that comes from that. And suddenly... He found himself under God's wrath and curse. We come again to the Garden of Gethsemane tonight and we see a new Adam. He's looking into the cup, this cup that the first Adam has filled and we in flagrant agreement have filled as well with our own darkness and our own wrong and our own a voice to God saying, no, my will be done. He's looking into that cup and he sees down into its depths the horror and the darkness of all the sin of the world, present, past and future. A terrible, dark morass of humanity's collected evil. And in it too, he sees the dreadful judgment of God, his implacable opposition to evil. And every holy instinct in him recoils from having anything to do with it. Can you see that he has to pray this prayer? It's the prayer of one who has rejected sin in every part of his life. Who has been in close communion with his, his father in everything he's done. And he's looking into the cup and he says, Father, take this from me. You know, it's not just the physical torture of the cross that he's talking about. Indeed, that's actually the least of it, excruciating as it is. No, he who knew no sin was about to become sin on that cross. He who was utterly pure would take in himself every sin, every wrong, every dark stain and vomitous horror that has come from the human heart would be poured down onto him. My sin, your sin, poured out. 
And God the Father would judge it all in Christ in only a matter of hours. And Jesus says, Father, dear Father, is there no other way? Father, take this cup from me. And you've got to understand that Jesus really wants this. It's not an idle suggestion or a passingly pious phrase. With all of his soul, he wants the Father to take this cup away from him. And for the very first time in all of history, in all of Jesus' life on earth, the Father says, no. No, my son. There is no other way. I don't know what it costs the Father to say that. I'll never know what it cost. But as I look at that, I know that the Father must love you infinitely to be able to say that so that you might come to him, so that I might come to him and be saved. And Jesus, Jesus who wants this cup to pass from him, he wants even more to do the will of the Father. You know, Jesus was free here. He could choose. He knows Judas is coming. Uh, He knows he could escape. In John's gospel, he, he says, do you not know that I could just say the word and God would send a legion of angels? He's in control. He can change it all with a word. But at this point, in the anguish of this moment, in the darkness, he has the choice to trust the Father. And the new Adam says, not my will, but your will be done. And so where Adam went to the tree and bought death, Jesus went to death on the tree and he brought life. I wonder if you've ever been in this kind of place. Obviously, not in exactly the same kind of place, is it? but a place that's dark and distressing and you know what God wants, but you really don't want to do it. Sometimes we push down these emotions and we pretend they aren't actually there. We hide them from God. Or worse, we think that if this bad thing is happening, then God can't be in control. God can't love me. Because I can't see how he's loving me. We're in the middle of a terrible storm in the dark and we can't see the light. Well, it's kind of like a, 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 a fairly typical day in Melbourne. A dark, grey and stormy day and you're hopping on a plane to go somewhere and uh, the weather's absolutely atrocious. You're not really sure you want to hop on and you, but you hop on and the plane takes off and as you break through the, crowd, the clouds you suddenly discover that above the storm It's a bright and sunny day. And the sun is still shining. It it, it hasn't been affected at all. Well, above the storm, God's love is still shining. God's still in control. Uh, But it can be hard to see, though. And, you know, in the depths of those places, the emotions are real. And so what do we do? Well, we can do what Jesus has done. 
We can come before God with our strongest emotions. We can actually pour them out to him as, as impious as we may think they are. Because Jesus knows what it means for you to be distressed. To see nothing but the darkness. To be sorrowful even to death. And Jesus, Jesus shows the way. What do we do? We bring them to the Father in all their force. And then we ask that God will enable us to trust him. To know his love for you is still shining and say, not my will but your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. And what's happening? Well, Jesus is so clearly distressed, so clearly in anguish when uh, he's so distressed that the blood's actually pouring off his face, his closest friends are asleep. Watch and pray, he said, but they sleep. Uh, It's interesting, just two days earlier, he told them of the great events that would herald the judgment and the end of the world. And he finished with these words. He said, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Well, the end is coming and the great eschatological events of history is about to break the very next day and they're asleep. Judas will come at midnight, the cock will crow for Peter and the master will be crucified in the morning. They're asleep. It seems a great irony, isn't it? If you think back to Jesus' calming of the storm and you remember that the disciples are terrified and Jesus is asleep in the boat, but this time the storm is coming infinitely more terrible than on that day and it is Jesus who's in anguish and the disciples are asleep. What should have they been doing? Well, Jesus had said, watch and pray. Pray that they will not fall into the time of trial. Jesus is about to die on the cross and the fury of Satan would soon turn upon them. They need to be praying. And so do we. I wonder if you're in a time of trial. Now, the most important thing you can do is stop. And find a quiet place. You know, a garden's not a bad idea, even at night. And pray. Pray that God will deliver you from the time of trial. That God will be at work. And then depend upon him. And my brothers and sisters, we need to watch and pray. Well, events overtake the disciples. They run out of time. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? Judas is one of the twelve. He's trusted, he's loved, he's respected. It must have been a terrible shock for the disciples. Sometimes we can have a picture in our head that the disciples kind of always knew it was Judas. 
You know, earlier in the night uh, when they say, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And, you know, what did all the disciples say? They say, oh, I know who that is. It's going to be Judas, isn't it? Because whenever we preached, Judas, no one came to Christ. Uh, whenever we went out to heal, Judas, he could never do it. No, they don't say that. Actually, what they say is, is it I? Is it me? They didn't know. And so it was a terrible shock to the disciples and you can still hear their hurt and outrage in their writing that we have in the Bible there. Luke emphasises that he was one of the twelve. He was an intimate disciple. He gives the kiss that signified the relationship that he did have with Jesus. Yet now it serves to highlight his duplicity and betrayal. You know, it's so much worse when it's someone... You love, isn't it? Psalm 55. Uh, as I've read Psalm 55 uh, over the last couple of days, I've, I wonder if Psalm 55 is actually the internal expression of Maundy Thursday night, the Garden of Gethsemane. But he says, It's not enemies who taunt me. I could bear that. It's not adversaries who deal insolently with me. I could hide from them. But it is you, my companion, my familiar friend, with speech smoother than butter, but with a heart set on war. You know, the closer you are to someone, the more you've shared life, and the more you've loved, the greater the pain it is when it's thrown in your face. And that's why Judas's sin here may not be so different to us. Because you and I have been infinitely loved by God. And we have all the outward signs of intimacy with God. We can, we can have the outward signs. We can be sitting in church and yet betraying him in our heart. To be using him for my own ends. To say, God, I will, I'll do this if you give me this. To deny him when things are dark. Are you betraying him with a kiss? Actually, we all have. Because whether you're a Christian here tonight or not, uh, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. But here's the great hope of Gethsemane. The great hope of the second garden for people like you and me. Jesus is delivered by Judas to sinners. But Jesus is delivered by God for sinners. Jesus will drink the cup. He has a heart for obedience to God. And Jesus has set his face to drink the cup, to go to the cross, to submit himself to the worst that the darkness can actually throw at him. He will pay the price for our forgiveness. The bright light of the Easter day lies ahead, but on this night, before we leap to that, let's pause. Let's stay in the garden. And let's look into the cup. Because Jesus says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And it was night. <laughs>